I wasn't here for this one. I know. Yeah. Surprise. Rude. <laughs> what the heck? That makes it seem like I'm never here. <laughs> You're listening to The John Chi Show, hosted by three Korean-American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean, American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the John Chi Show, 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 Show. I am one of your hosts, Patrick Armstrong, here with my fellow co-hosts, Nathan Nowak and KJ Relke. How are you boys doing today? Doing, doing it. Yes, we. Yes, we. Oh, we're speaking other languages now. Yeah. Is that that how you say good? I don't know. Yes. Yes. Sehr gut. Sehr gut. Sehr gut. Wait, what's that? German? Yes. Yeah. German. Nice. I can recognize it. Can't say it. Mm -hmm. Well, we are the John Chi Boys, the Banquet Boys. We, (laughs) I don't know if you told me how you were doing other than started to talk in different languages. So I'm just going to blast forward. (laughs) We just said it's good in a lot of different languages. That's true. That's true. I'm glad that y'all are doing good. I'm doing good as well. Um, Ciao, Bella. We are the John Chi Show, and we are excited to be back for 2024. Nathan, for anybody joining us this year who hasn't heard the show before, what does John Chi mean? Uh, John Chi means to feast and celebrate and uh, banquet. And so we are feasting and celebrating um, amongst ourselves and with each other and with others because uh, we have a snack or drink at the end of our show. But yeah, sometimes also, it's a drink you yeah. can snack on and a snack <laughs> you can drink on. Drink on. <laughs> yeah. You'll never know. But uh, but we're here and we're, um, you know, discussing our identities and our stories. That's yes. true. And our futures. And our futures. <laughs> our past, our, our presence, and our futures with our ghosts. Because mm-hmm. it is that time of year. Well, mm-hmm. I guess it's past that time of year. But what's up? <laughs> Not much. Uh, you know, I was just thinking like Lunar New Year is coming up here yep. soon-ish, mm-hmm. uh, which is exciting. I should probably try to get another uh, New Year celebration, but it's Asian going on or something. So, yeah. I don't know. Like we it. talked about it on air last week, but uh, Year of the Wood Dragon. So shout mm, out to yes. all you dragon heads Yay, out dragons. there. Dragons. Shout out yes. to the wooded dragons out there. I don't know how fire and wood go together, but it seems to work out. <laughs> it seems to work. And it's I'm here for it. Overall positive. Yes. Overall net positive situation. Um, we got a really exciting episode this week. A guest interview with the one and only Dr. Kim McKee. One that I was actually not here for. So you're not going to hear me on this episode. So I can't give you a synopsis of it because I haven't listened to it yet. But... <laughs> KJ and Nathan were there. They had a great conversation. Can you guys let us know what we're going to or what we should expect from this conversation y'all had? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a good conversation. This is a, a unique situation because I I think, um, and I, I've had lots of time to research this, and classic KJ didn't do any research prior to the show, um, but I, I think that this is our first official returning guest mm-hmm. where it's oh. not a part two. It's not a... You know, whatever Special, continuation, yeah, yeah, whatever. We're like someone who's been on previously. I think it's like our first official part two, or sorry, first official returning guest. So that's cool. Um, and you can listen to her first episode, episode 69. We go over her new book, Adoption Fantasies, the fetishization of Asian adoptees from girlhood to womanhood. Uh, and we talk about it in, in the show, but um, it's really kind of examining what it means to be an Asian woman and adopted and then an Asian adoptee and female presenting um, with some like really key cultural references from, I think, what is it like 1990 to 2015 or something like that? Isn't it like the window that she said? Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that that was just such a, a, a clear, like pointed idea. Cause we talk about like sex in the city. We talk about modern family. We talk about like, well, in her book, she talks about that. She talks about um, like some of the Asian stuff, the non-Asians, like just all of these things that really make up what it is to be, to be to have these intersection of identities and it was just a really good conversation uh, chatting with her about that i don't know nathan what stood out yeah. to you about it i mean there was definitely some i mean during um the process of reading the book too i, I was there's some eye-opening things that i would really highly recommend for not you know not just i know we talk about that if this is for 
you know, women and, and stuff like that. But this was, you know, KJ and I's uh, opinion of the book as well. And so it's not just for women. And although it is, she does state that is her love letter to, um, you know, adoptees, uh, women and stuff like that. So I don't know. I, I personally got a lot out of it because I do have a daughter and I also uh, am interested in just you how are married yeah, <laughs> and are married. And I you know and I women. This is, <laughs> yeah. And I know women. This is, yeah, what? exactly. Well, I would like, you know, to understand women, I guess you could say. So, um, and what they've gone through and the, and it's, it's very, it's a very interesting book and I really appreciate it just for her, uh, her time. Cause she was in Korea as well. Um, mm. and to making the time to come on to our show again and uh, tell us a little bit about the book. So, well, I'm excited to listen to the episode, Dr. McKee, somebody I've learned a lot from disrupting kinship. One of my four, uh, now five, but that's a spoiler, uh, key, pieces of resource and, and literature when it comes to Korean adoption and things like that, that deal with that topic. So really excited to hear you all have this discussion, really excited to dive into the book myself. And without further ado, let's get to it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the John G. Show interview portion. Uh, today, we have a very special returning guest, Dr. Kim McKee. Ooh. Kim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's really nice to be back here. Thank you. Uh, well, it's great to have you on again. It's great to have you calling in from South Korea, which is not mm -hmm. the case when we talked uh, <laughs> almost directly two years ago um, as of this recording. So when we last talked, listeners, you can go back to episode 69 to find that. You don't have to scroll a while. It was uh, December of 2021. Um, and you had you had wrapped up Disrupting Kinship and, and we we're talking about that. And Patrick was very excited to, to talk to you because he was like, oh yeah, I've read the book. This is going to be great. And it was a great conversation. Um, but what have you done briefly in the in, in the intervening two periods, and how have you ended up across the ocean? Well, how I ended up across the ocean is I assume that, by plane. Yeah, I, I did fly here. It was nice. I did not have to she take a boat. swam, okay? I, or swim. I hope not. But um, no. So I'm here as a U.S. Fulbright Scholar. So I am teaching faculty at Sogang University. Um, so I was here this past fall. Um, we came in August of 2023, but the semester didn't start till September. And I'm just finishing up the semester this week, actually. Uh, this is the final exam period. And so then I have to grade and then grades will be due. And then we'll be staying through the beginning of 2024. Um, so it's pretty cool. It's one U.S. academic year, but because of how the Korean academic year structures itself, we're, I'm joining them for their next academic year, which will be fun. And so that will start, classes will start in March. And so in 2021, I ended up applying for the Fulbright in fall of 2022. And I was notified that I received it uh, earlier this past year. And it's quite exciting. So I'm here. My son is with me. And then my husband um, comes back and forth between our home and outside of Chicago and then to Seoul. And so it's been really great. And oh, you asked me what else I've done besides just coming to Korea. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that has happened uh, recently as I finished uh, my second book, Adoption Fantasies, The Fetishization of Asian Adoptees from Girlhood to Womanhood. And so that I was working on that when I last talked to you. And then um, that's kind of really been my focus within the past, I guess, two years. And so it's been really cool to have that book come out while I'm in Korea. And so now I've been thinking a lot more though about adoptees fantasies around adoption and return. Um, I've also been thinking a lot about kinship and motherhood and what it means to, to be in Korea as a parent, as opposed to the other times that I've come to Korea and negotiated like being adopt an adoptee in Seoul and other parts. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah, I'm I'm super excited to to have you on to talk about your book. Um, and I wanted to to just highlight um, a couple of things that I think were are really interesting as I was reading through it. Um, so in I think it's chapter two or chapter three. There's just one line. Just it's it's kind of a 
it's not a throwaway line. It's literally the beginning of a paragraph. But it, to me, it was just like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. Uh, so you write, perhaps adoptees were never supposed to grow up. And that's something that we talk about on the show. And I know that a lot of scholars and, and people kind of in, in the community even talk about the idea of being perennially infants and those kinds of things. And at the same time, um, we've got uh, your book blurb, which a little bit says, and the, the pertinent part here is, McKee traces the life cycle of the adopted Asian woman from the rendering of an infinite adoptee body in white U.S. imaginary to Asian American fantasies of adoption to encounters with the hypersexualization of Asian and Asian American women and girls in the U.S. popular culture. So I really like that your book is like, well, what if adoptees do grow up? <laughs> Even though maybe we were never supposed to grow up, what happens if they do, and, and how do they how do they wrestle with that? So, um, for the listener, can you is can you provide kind of a broad overview of what your new book is about? And I really am excited to talk to you about it because as I was re-listening to our previous episode, you had just hinted at like you know I'm, I'm like working on this idea, I'm like tinkering around with it, I think I've got it, you know whatever. And so it's really really exciting to have you back on. And it's like oh this is like this is directly you could go one to the other, and, and it would be like no time has passed except for two years. <laughs> well, and then if you think about how, I don't know, for me, time, I can't believe it's already 2024 or going to be 2024. So yeah, time feels absolutely. very relative, mm-hmm. right? And so, oh gosh. So when I think about what this book is doing, I'm looking at um, how adoption is depicted in popular culture. So thinking about both uh, documentary and real life examples, as well as fictional television and film examples in part because U.S. popular culture says so much, tells us so much about adoption. It demonstrates how um, kind of everyday Americans are conceiving adoption and the kinds of messages that they're engaged with. And so I think a lot about, and I think I have a line about this in the book, or at least an end note, that I was surprised, and this is when I was wrapping up my page proofs and copy edits over this past summer, to discover that the blind side Right, was one of Netflix's, I think it was the most popular um, DVD movie, maybe Whoa. not stream, but back when hmm. Netflix did like DVDs. Yeah, back DVDs. when you're still renting DVDs. Yeah, yeah hmm. when they would mail them to you. And I'm, I'm sure for many of your listeners, they've been kind of, they followed sort of what happened with the Tuies and Michael Orr in real life, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, knowing that, it says so much about our country, that a movie about a white woman, quote unquote, saving you know, a black mm-hmm. teenager is the most kind of sought after, downloaded, watched, rented, I don't know, whatever word we're using to describe what Netflix has done and is doing, film, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so that really stuck with me. But to get to what the book is actually focused about, I'm looking at the way the adopted Asian girl and woman circulates in the U.S. popular cultural imaginary from 1992 to 2015. And so I was intentional about selecting 1992 because I start and I look at Woody Allen, Sunni Previn, and Mia Farrow. And for those who are the uninitiated in terms of who any of those figures are, uh, Mia, the actress Mia Farrow adopted Sunni Previn when Sunni was um, a young girl. And she, you know, is her adoptive mother. Um, Farrow was in a relationship with Allen, but then... Uh, In 1992, it came out to light that Alan and Previn were engaged in a relationship. They have since married. Um, And so I kind of think about how Pharaoh really, how kind of Pharaoh's reaction to what happened to her daughter, Sun Yi, exemplifies some of the concerns and um, demonstrates like the limits to adoptive families, especially thinking about what love looks like. Um, And this is especially true when you start looking at and listening to how Pharaoh described and describes currently uh, Sunni Previn in comparison to her other children, both adopted and non-adopted. I also look at Modern Family, Sex in the City, um, the film Soul Searching. I look at the documentary Twinsters. I look at some early um, indie mainstream films, Sideways and Better Luck Tomorrow. And so I look at a range of media to really understand how that infant body as seen in Modern Family and Sex in the City, evolves. So thinking about adolescence, young adulthood, what does it mean when adoptees are not with their white adoptive parents and we're just seen as just another Asian or Asian American woman? And I think about, too, how do Asian American 
cultural producers traffic in fantasies of adoption because Asian Americans also have their own notions of what adoption is, um, just like white folks, right? And then uh, I finally turn a lens to think about how adoptees have internalized those messages and what are adoptees doing to kind of engage those fantasies and as well as push back against those. Yeah, that was very interesting. Um, when you started off the book with the modern family and the sex in the city, I actually didn't ever watch sex in the city. Not a big surprise there, but, uh, the fact that I didn't know that that they had an adoption storyline in that, and that the I did watch Modern Family though, and that the name of the girl was the same. Both were Lily, which I thought was very interesting. Um, I don't know how coincidental that is, but just hearing how you described the incidents from those 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 storylines, I was like, oh, I, I I never thought of it that way. I, I I wasn't looking at it like that through my, you know, because back then I was still in the fog of, of sorts and I wasn't looking at it at the adoption story um, the way that I would look at it now and the way that you kind of describe it in the book. Um, so that was a very interesting um, kind of revelation for me. And on top of that, I also had some other revelations during the reading um, some of the some of your book and also relating to a lot of the things that you said, even when you put those little inserts of quotes throughout the book, um, you know, when you, when you, there's like, I'm looking at one right now that says, I don't see you as Asian. I see you as my child. And I just, I don't know how many times my parents have actually said that to me as well. And, you know, you go through kind of a more of a history of, of adoption and other types of, of microaggressions that we may have received or, um, things that, uh, that we as adoptees kind of run into it in, in everyday life. Um, so I found that very interesting. And then lastly, I found one key thing very interesting too, that I didn't expect um, when you started talking about how adoption was legalized 20 some years before interracial marriage was. I, I, that kind of blew me away. I didn't actually ever realized that that was a thing that that was legal, but yet you couldn't have married, but yet you could adopt a child. So I think a lot about that because I think when yeah. you understand when the first transracial adoptions are sort of been documented to happen right in 1948 in Minnesota. Um, and then when you think about loving v. Virginia in 1967, right. It says so much about who we are as a country and mm -hmm. in, in what the U S is invested in around notions of child saving and rescue. Uh, next semester, I'm super excited. I'm teaching this class, a special topics class called Forced Separation and Rescue um, <laughs> for the Department of American Culture at Sogong. And so, uh, you know, all of this kind of in my mind is so overlapping to really, you know, think concretely about how adoption needs to be understood through a lens of white supremacy, anti-blackness, settler colonialism, uh, imperialism, militarism, because it tells you a story about who people think they are um, and their professed beliefs and how those professed beliefs sometimes don't line up with kind of other aspects of their identity. Um, I have another essay that's going to come out next year on in a volume on global anti-Asian racisms that Jennifer Ho is editing. Um, and that essay, part of the title is The Anti-Asian Racism at Home. And it really looks at how adoptees, one of adoptees' earliest encounters with anti-Asian racism and microaggressions is either within the family or within the white communities that are professed to be these safe environments for them. And I know not all adopt Asian adoptees or adoptees of color are adopted into white families, but given how the majority of us are, you know, and I think anecdotally, when you talk to adoptees and some of your guests have share this too, right? We all have those experiences and, and we all know those experiences so intimately. And so I think for me, as I was writing, especially about modern family and sex in the city um, and some of the interactions, we know those experiences. We've had those experiences. And for many of us, we've kind of just laughed it off uh, because it's easier to do that than really sit with, mm -hmm. to sit with it sometimes. And I think it's easy to cast kind of this retrospective eye being like, oh, yeah, that happened. But when you're in the moment, depending on your age and where you are in terms of your adoptee consciousness, it may not even track for you. I have um, a story, I guess you could call it a story in adoption fantasies where I recall in high school, 
uh, a classmate of mine um, in it started at our Spanish class. She would start. She started calling me Janet, like Janet in the real world, Seattle. And I never like in it never bothered me enough to be like, oh, why are you doing that? That's really racist. But like now as an adult, I'm like, oh gosh, that I, I'm horrified for myself, right? You know, what does it mean where something like that doesn't even kind of register? Because that says so much about the communities in which we were growing up in. You talked a little bit about that, like the silence is a safety cushion or blanket. And and that happened to me many times or in my my personal life, it was it was making a joke or laughing with them about it, even though I may not have liked what was being said. Um, it just was like, oh, it was just so much easier to do that than to address it or to, um, yeah, to, to say anything. And so and it's sad when I think about some of the instances where I've done that. Well, and it's so interesting for me, too, because um, I <laughs> I don't have a good uh, racism radar, I guess, if that, if that makes sense. Um, in, in the, like, I am only now developing that skill to be like, yo, that, that stems from a racist, like foundation, even if the thing that you say is not overtly harmful. Right. So you talk about in chapter one, like, oh, there's my little fortune cookie or, you know, whatever, like referring to an Asian, Asian baby. And, uh, I was like, oh yeah, wait, that's, that's weird. What if we called all, and I, I tried to create like an analog for white babies. I was like, here's my little tub of mayo. I, I don't know. I don't know what the, <laughs> I don't know what the white baby equivalent is. Uh, I just always equate white people and, and mayonnaise for better or for worse. But uh, <laughs> it, it was just like, it's just one of those things that I think what's, what's so interesting about, about this book as I'm, as I'm reading through it and I, and I posted on threads about it, uh, it was a, I'm, I'm real dumb uh, and reading, reading this and was like, oh yeah, right. Like, I think I'm smart. And then I just like immediately was humbled. But uh, more than that, it just, it helped me re-engage with um, the sense of specifically like female bodies and the way that they move through the world and just my immense ignorance of that. And and we talk about on the show, like that the, the three of us as hosts are very like conscious of like being males and being uh cisgendered and and uh heterosexual males on top of that but like it just was so it's so interesting to be able to read this and i love that you have used um so many different points of view of pop culture right and specifically uh i just was reading through uh, i think it's chapter two where you're talking through like what does it look like to examine just Asian female bodies outside of the scope of adoption because that is invisible uh, if you're outside of you know the umbrella of that I'm curious was there anything in your in your research and in your writing that came as a surprise to you or uh, did anything change as you were writing this or are you just like no nah, I just this is all stuff that I know and now I have the research to back it up and just like put it out there into the world like I say I think in the introduction this is my love letter to other Asian adopted women and girls and other adoptees too. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But there is something that is, has been so meaningful for me when I hear from other Asian adopted women, especially that the book has resonated with them on multiple levels, because a lot of the examples that I provide both kind of in pop culture, but then when I share sort of my own experiences, they've had something similar happen to them. And I have been thinking about this book since graduate school. Um, that's when I first started thinking about Suni Previn and how she demonstrates the limits of multiculturalism and colorblind love in the family. I mean, we all knew that those concepts were faulty, but like then she really exemplifies that, right? And what has ha what happened to her. Um, and so this is something I've been wrestling with and interrogating for for a while. And because of that, I... It's not that as I was writing it, something new happened. I think for me, especially in chapter two, is really demonstrating and connecting those threads that highlight the fact that Asian adopted women and girls are Asian women and girls are Asian American women and girls. And we know that and we recognize that through our interactions, especially with um, our white fathers or our in-laws or brothers, et cetera. But I think for so many people, it's very hard to confront that 
because then you're forced to see that your kinship ties may not be legible. And that goes against everything, you know, a lot of adoptive families were trying to construct, especially when the majority of us were coming of age in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, right? Because of when you think about when the peaks of international adoption were happening. And so the reason, too, why I focus on uh, 92 to 2015 is because it aligns with when the majority of Korean adoptees were coming of age. It aligns with what was going on with Operation Baby Lift and, and those Vietnamese children, as well as thinking about the, the rise of uh, adoptions from China, right? So you have this kind of tipping point to really start reflecting on some of these issues. This isn't obviously to say we, we know international adoption from Asian countries was going on m- much longer. We know that transracial adoptees are grandparents, if not, you know, parents or I guess I suppose one could be great grandparents, you know, et cetera. But there's a moment that's happening now, I think, too, because of how technology has really shaped interactions as, as well as thinking about pop culture's hold on how people understand race, how people understand adoption, how people understand family, kinship, et cetera, that to study this is, for me at least, was really meant to contribute to a, a, a broader dialogue that I think that has been occurring, but really trying to confront then how our white Americans and Asian Americans complicit in sometimes similar and sometimes divergent understandings of adoption and what does that mean? So I think a lot about how for a lot of Asian Americans, sometimes adoptees are used as a vehicle to think about racial self-loathing and contradictions to identity without necessarily attending to the violences of adoption. So it's easy to imagine, like, what does it mean to have kind of adoption, but when you don't fully understand the ramifications or the um, reasons fueling that adoption, it can sometimes be simplistic or you kind of then are a recipient of somebody's pity or assumed to be inherently melancholic and missing something because you don't have um, Asian parents raising you. Something I, I I think is appropriate too for the timing of this, uh, your book and next year's con um, for the listeners, you were the first assistant director of con um, when, I guess, so many years ago. And now next year's con conference, Korean Adoptee Conference or Adoptee Conference is uh, focusing on representation and visibility, which in a way I feel is, is really coming out of your book a lot of, you know, that you talk about specifically. Um, were you excited when you heard that that's what our, our I guess, our, our um, subject or theme was going to be next year? And are there things that, that you think that your book how am I phrasing this? How how are those related? How are things in the media being represented at the moment? Because you we, you talk about it in the book, but for the people who haven't read the book yet, you know, can you discuss that a little more? Other than the modern family and the oh, definitely, I really love the community that Khan has created um, and continues to build over the years. So I first became involved in Khan. Oh goodness, my first Khan was in two thousand and seven, and I was I just attended, and then I. Uh, my involvement kind of ebbed and flowed. I, I joined the advisory council. Um, and then it was when I was coordinating the return to Minneapolis for the second time in 2014, Stacy Schroeder, who was the second executive director, invited me to become assistant director secretary. And so that was a position that I had from 2014 to 2020. Um, and so I was helping bring on uh, and transition Katie Bozek into that role. So, you know, it's been a privilege to be part of the con community. I think for me, when I think about the con CFP, as well as just broader understandings of representation and visibility, I think about how much has changed, right? But I think about how much has stayed the same. And yeah. so for me, a lot of it, and I mention it briefly in the book, right, in the um, in the coda about Joyride. Mm-hmm. I think a lot about Shannon Gibney and Nicole Chung's um, edited anthology of 15 Um, adoptee authors, right? That YA anthology, When We Become Ours. I think a lot about some of the recent memoirs that have been written by adoptees um, that have been released. So Gibney's The Girl I Am I Was, I Never Will Be, Uh, Jenny Hedgen-Wills' book, Older Sister, Not Necessarily Related, Susan Ito's 
most recent book and I see the beautiful cover and now I'm blanking on her, her, her poor title. So my apologies, Suzanne and others, because we're seeing a shift in how our stories are being told. And what I love about when we become ours, because I could gush about it for hours is that <laughs> you read some of the stories and, you know, as I was reading them, um, cause I know, I know Shannon, I've known her for a while. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Their story is great. Right. Or I reached out to Jenny, um, who I've known for a long time as well. And I was like, your story is so beautiful because it captures so many things. And I think that's mm-hmm. what people fail sometimes to understand that there, there's a level of nuance and, in, and intimacy that adoptees get, and you can see it in their writing as they write about adoption. And that's absent from a lot of the stories that non-adopted people tell. I'm not saying that it's not present at all, right? I, you know, I really enjoyed, for instance, Davy Chu's film, Return to Soul. Um, mm-hmm. overall, I think there, there's obviously every, every kind of, uh, type of media, there's room to critique, but I think overall, I, I really enjoyed the film when it came out this past year, but I also think that there's, um, ways where we saw really great discourse and vibrant conversation. So, you know, I think about when Joyride came out and how adoptees had varying, uh, views, uh, of the film. Um, and I think about the work that I did with Sun Young Shin, Grace Gerloff, and Grace Newton to collaborate, um, to create a discussion guide um, about the film, to really think about, uh, you have this film and we can critique it all we want, but how can we also situate some of that plot uh, within broader conversations to really understand what does that mean long-term as we're continually to push and shift the needle of conversation? Right. And what I liked about working with Sun Young, Grace and Grace is because um, we were we've been involved with the adoptee community broadly um, at at different points. Right. So I think about Sun Young's work um, as one of the co-editors for Outsiders Within, which was just re-released two years ago, I believe, in 2021 by University of Minnesota Press. I think about Grace Newton's work on Red Thread Broken. She was also involved with Khan, um, I believe, was on the advisory council for a little bit. I think about Grace Gerloff, who's also a Chinese adoptee. and her interest in thinking about um, adoptees' use of social media. And so for me, coming together and having that conversation with them was so helpful. In terms of other discussions of representation and adoption, you know, for me, it's also how can we continue to recognize that we need to push the needle while also being really aware of um, that beautiful adoptee consciousness model that J. Ron Kim, mm-hmm. Paula O'Laughlin, Susan Bronco, Grace Newton, and others contributed toward. Because for me, that model really helps us understand that if you've been engaged in the adoptee community, that's great. But if you're also newer to the community, right, because your adoptee consciousness became activated, that sounds odd. I should be because you became woke adoptee style, (laughs) (laughs) right? Well, because you because you sort of started engaging in those kinds of ways. I I want us to have a big, a large table, and maybe table is not even the right word for it. But to think about when we have these conversations about representation, they they are need to be nuanced. They need to be layered. We need to lean into the gray area. Not everything is black and white, and so and we also don't have to agree the same way. That would be very boring. I don't want everybody to agree. But that also means that we have to have a good conversation where we can then spend time teasing out and thinking about, okay, well, why does this aspect of, say, Joyride resonate with so many? And where does the movie fall flat? Right. We can have a both and. We can also say, hey, Asian American culture producers, it's not merely enough to say, oh, we can talk to our adoptee friend. Or like I've seen (laughs) interviews where Asian American culture producers like, well, I dated this girl and I was so inspired by her story. So I wanted to write about adoption. Dude, we can do better. So let's do better because there are Asian American adoptees in the media industry. So let's let's use those resources. Um, let's reach out to um, adoptee scholars and adoptee activists and ask them to co- to actually be paid consultants, right? And again, mm-hmm. the paid part is key because labor, right? Um, and to recognize that, you know- Because you're here. worth it, adoptees. Exactly. Right? So, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think 
I'm excited about the theme. I'm bummed that I won't be back uh, for the conference. I w- it was nice uh, being there last year. Um, but because of when the Fulbright ends and when the academic calendar ends, we're not going to probably land stateside until right at the end of June. So it would be just not necessarily feasible because of when grades are due, et cetera. But yeah, no, I'm excited because I think having more conversations to thinking about representation and what we want it is going to continue to allow us to have a more enriching discussion. And so here I also think about, so Shannon Gimme and I collaborated and we wrote about Little Fires Everywhere, both the book and the Hulu TV series, to think about what happens when um, the showrunner for Hulu is a domestic same-race adoptee, right? And so then we also thought about, so what does that look like in the show? But then all, and like, how has that manifested in the show as well as their intentional diverse writer's room? And what does it mean when adoption, again, is used as a plot device, right? And so what happens when people like adoption because it helps propel storylines, but they're not necessarily thinking about the adoptee as an autonomous subject with agency. And so then when we are autonomous subjects with agency, what does it look like when adoptees are writing those stories as opposed to non-adopted authors, which is again, which is why When We Become Ours is such a beautiful book, as well as some of the other works of fiction by writers who are adopted people who write about adoption. Yeah, 100%. And and what I love about your your book is for me going back to because my racism radar is like broken and non-existent but developing. Um it was it was so interesting to be able to read like your almost cross-examination of different like kind of pop culture representations or lack thereof of an adoption narrative. And I had the privilege of uh, sitting in on an early table read for an adoptee-led short film project. And one of the things that's been plaguing my mind as we do the show, as we think about um, con and and really a lot of, I feel like the community, the vocal community members right now within the uh, Asian adoptee community that I'm aware of are like, yeah, more media representation. I'm like, my first question is like, but what does that look like for you specifically? What does it like, what are you, uh, it's great to like push the needle for more representation, but like what, when you say representation, what are you actually saying? Are you just saying like you just want some adoptees present? Are you saying you want adoption to be a plot device? Are you saying you want adoption to be a backdrop to a kid? Like there's so many things. And I, and I think what's what was so interesting is as, as I'm reading through your book, as I'm uh, in the very privileged position of uh, learning more about a paradigm that I will never have to experience um, and, and a just a, a life that I'll never have to experience. I'm also just drawn to, oh man, this is, I, I think uh, you highlighting um, <laughs> Tokyo Drift of all things. Uh, like, and and I think Justin Lin, it, maybe it was a, a different movie that he, he directed. It was like, no, oh yeah, we Tokyo wanted to. Drift. I really, okay. and I'm also very invested in the Fast and Furious franchise. <laughs> <laughs> very. Uh, yeah, me too. Uh, you, you also uh, referenced ironically, but also and Iron yeah. Man three too. So <laughs> um, I was impressed. <laughs> but it was just it was it was fun to be able to say like you know here's here's a specific look at some movies where adoption isn't the thing because we know that they still affect adoptee bodies and here's a thing where adoption is a thing and how does that influence the character arc that that the character goes through and those kinds of things right and so I think it's just like being able to sit in the book and read and talk about like. But I mean, it. I am not an Asian woman, uh, and I still felt seen and loved by the book because I like so many things about um, things that exist in my own personal zeitgeist. I don't know if that's even an accurate use of the word, but you know, like just in my own experience, like that I don't know where they came from. Culture defining moments, um, like the fortune cookie example, or um, like the the header that that Nathan brought up. Like I don't see you as. Asian, I see you as my child, you know, whatever, like those kinds of things, they just kind of exist in my brain. They kind of exist in all of our brains to some, some degree. And I think what's so interesting is through, uh, reading your book, I was able to, to see like, oh, this is maybe where they come from. And now I get, uh, as you, the author are dealing with them. I'm like, oh yeah, I wonder how I would wrestle with these things now in the, in the, the privilege of being, um, 
fully conscious as an adoptee and in the privilege of being mostly grown up as a 30 year old person, I guess, uh, mostly developed mentally, um, and, and being able to sit with that. And then it, it allows me then to say, Oh, well, here's, you know, as you're highlighting, like some of the tropes, some of the, how adoption is told at specific moments in pop culture history, as we think about what does it mean to, to push forward? Um, then I can say, Oh, well, based on these tropes, uh, your experience and your authorship, my own experience, listening to other stories, maybe these are the things that we can push for. Maybe these are the ways that we can, can like specifically push the needle forward, you know? Well, I think a lot about how, and this is not related to the book, but something that I have examined is the, I want to say it's season five from the uh, show, This Is Us, right? where um, it follows the Pearson family. It follows uh, Randall Pearson and his twin white siblings, um, and they're in their larger family, right? And so they use the flashbacks and they talk about present day, and then they they show us the future, et cetera. Um, in terms of the show, and it, the show has sit, since stopped uh, running. But and I think about the show This Is Us in part because we see how by the time season five happens, um, this the show that. Uh, in interviews, the showrunner Dan Fogelman has said that they tried to be apolitical. They weren't a political show. And yet in season five, we see how Randall, who is transracially adopted, um, the black son within this this white family growing up in Pennsylvania, um, he has this, uh, you see him going, working through the adoptee consciousness model, right? You see his identity becoming his black identity, him being more confident and having those conversations with his siblings negotiating that with his mother um, because it, in the operating in the backdrop of that season is both COVID-19 and um, in the wake of the 2020 protests uh, following the murder of George Floyd, right? And so you see how this is playing out in this fictional person's life. Um, and I think a lot about kind of the, the hold that television show This Is Us had on American culture for a particular time. And, and what that looks like and what that means. Uh, and I believe Angela Tucker, she's a Black transracial adoptee, consulted for the show, right? And so, but when I've talked to other adoptees, they're like, oh, I have not watched that. Oh, I'm glad you're watching it because, you know, I can't watch that, right? And and what does that mean, too, when you have these shows that are so wildly popular and many adoptees are opting out of engaging with that show because there's so many non-adoptees then opting in? And so, again, where are people getting their understandings of adoption from. It's through these shows. To pretend otherwise, I think, would be disingenuous. So you, even as adoptees are hosting podcasts or on Instagram or on TikTok or on other social media platforms, thinking about like Blue Sky Threads, et cetera, there's going to be so many folks who haven't even entered into that discourse because they don't know it exists. And so how they're coming into contact with adoption it's through television shows. It's through their neighbor's cousin's daughter, you know, who adopted kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Or maybe, you know, and so this is why you still have kids being asked to do like family tree assignments in school, even though we know that those are really troubling and problematic. Right. Mm. Because people think it would be fun to unearth history of your family. Uh, and this is not just thinking about the trauma. Those assignments are potentially for like the traumatic nature of those assignments for adopted people or, or even children of adoptees, but for other people whose family formations don't necessarily adhere to kind of the, the straight um, heteronormative family structure. A funny story about that. I, I did a family tree and but I did it with my adoptive family. And so I did all the research to try to go back as far as I could and find people. And I even went as far as to find connections um, of of third cousins and things like that, just to see, um, you know, if I could find some of these people and I found a third cousin on Facebook and I messaged him and said, Hey, I think is your father, this person whose grandfather is this person. I think I'm your third cousin. And by the way, I'm adopted because I was thinking that he's going to look at my photo and go, why is this Asian guy messaging me thinking that we're the same family, even though our last names are the same? I'm like, it was so weird. And I thought about that afterwards going, ah, that was kind of 
that's probably really weird. And I never heard back from the person. So obviously it was either the correct person or they were just weirded out by my random DM. But um, yeah, it, uh, all of the stuff that you talk about is, is, I mean, this is really good in this book. Uh, one of the things I was going to ask is, are there things that you wanted to put in the book? Cause I know you, like you said, you talked in the coda about Joyride, which kind of came out toward the end of all of this. Um, are there other things that you, cause it's an ever changing, you know, representation, new films, Return to Soul, you know, it was only, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, or was it this year actually, I guess. Um, are there other things that you wanted to include, but just didn't have time to include into the book? I intentionally stopped the book in 2015 because I wanted to think both about Benson Lee's Soul Searching that came out on Netflix in 2015, as well as um, Twinsters, the documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, both of those texts are doing something obviously wildly different based on genre of film and documentary, but our feature film and documentary. Um, but for me, it was also to really bookend, I think, where we're seeing a turning point in how adoptees were engaged in community and what that looked like. So I think about adoptees who may have ended up coming to the ICA gathering or um, when Catch, the Chicago Korean Adoptee Group, had their anniversary um, sort of annual convention. You know, people referenced thinking about both Twinsters or thinking about um, some of the stuff that Dan Matthews has put out um, kind of around the same time period, if not slightly earlier, right, as they're like, oh, I didn't know this existed. And then I saw it here, right? Um, you see that Deanne Borsalium features some parts of the gathering, but not in the same kinds of ways as you see it in some of Dan Matthews's work, as well as in Twinsters, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think about how much has shifted since then. And, you know, it's been nearly 10 years, right, since that, since that stuff has come out. And so for me, when I think about adoption, um, an adoptee representation now and and what we're doing and, and what I'm doing with my own work, I'm more interested in thinking about how has the conversation moved so we can have more nuanced conversations about how reunion is not an, an, a fixed endpoint. We can talk about the possibilities um, and the doppelgangers that I know, like Shannon Gibney has talked about, Sun Young has talked about, Matthew Celeste's has written about a book, you know, explicitly invoking the doppelganger, right? And so, you know, what happens when we start imagining something else? What happens when we also think about how uh, European adoptees have really spearheaded a lot of activist conversations broadly around adoptee rights, both in Europe as well as in, in Korea, how can we situate that in conversation with some of the activism happening in the U.S. around citizenship, for instance? At the same time, I'm really conscious about how has the advent of adoptee podcasts allowed us to create our own archive. So a lot of folks talk about our records as an archive, and that is an archive. I'm not trying to dismiss it, right? But how have we also been intentional about documenting the experiences of adoptees through podcasting to create new narratives that fall outside of um, written text, right? So thinking about adoptees who may never write a memoir, but are on a podcast and they're sharing their experiences, right? Or how are we also pushing the needle by asking for something else, for something different, or really grappling with I think where adoptees are in terms of having certain kinds of conversations. So I think a lot about when, um, with my work in con leading up to the 2016 election, we, at, at that, at that con conference, right. We had, were just talking about Brexit amongst ourselves. And then, you know, we ended up having a session that I facilitated about, um, you know, our racist relatives and what that looks like. And it's not to say we weren't having those conversations earlier at con or in other spaces, but rather I think folks were having a different kind of conversation. It wasn't just being like, oh, white privilege and racism exist, but it's like, okay, so this is what's happening. How are you encountering these things within your family? What are the strategies you're using? Um, I think you're seeing more of people actually openly talk about estrangement um, and also boundaries and what that looks like. I mean, think about, I mean, you have kids, Nathan. But I think about, too, the discourse around parenting and how parenting has changed and this the mm-hmm. emphasis on boundaries. 
um, in accepting your kids' boundaries. And I'm thinking a lot about this because I think if you're on uh, Instagram right now, especially around the holidays, you see a lot of um, parenting Instagram people talking about like, you know, that generational shift and what that looks like. And so, and I mentioned this only to say, because I think we're seeing that same kind of discourse change within adoption communities. And I, I don't think you can rush it, um, but I think you can see it in how folks are entering into the conversation and what they're willing to have conversations about, right? People are way more willing to proclaim, I think, certain positions that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I don't know if we would be having the same conversation, but that's good because it's showing how we continue to evolve as a community. Yeah. I definitely agree. I, and also on your point too, when you were talking about the family relations and, um, and people talking about it, just like the little things you, you referenced Twinsters and, and Sam Fuderman, um, did a short film also on YouTube. Did you see that one about, during COVID? Um, but it was about how her, her, her like relationship with her mom, um, and the, the, uh, aggressive things that she was having happen to her because she was Asian and the COVID people were blaming China and things like that. So, um, but I found that very interesting because the mediums are also more um, available now. I mean, granted, you know, Facebook and YouTube and all those things have been around, but I see more of that now, more short films um, being, being portrayed through different types of media or TikToks or even Instagram reels and things like that. Like you said, people are talking about it. People are trying to move that needle. And uh, that, that, that gives me hope that things are changing. And uh, again, to you, what you said, it's, it's moving slowly. It's not going to be overnight kind of a thing. So um, I, I definitely have hope for it. And I'm happy that, uh, that people like you are writing books um, like this and that, uh, and you know, that, there are resources out there, more resources than I thought, you know, or had when I was a kid. I think a lot about how when Rosita Gonzalez and like Amanda Transfer Wilson and the other members of Lost Daughters, that writing collective, when that flip the script hashtag was launched in 2014, right? I think, or I think a lot about, you know, how has, how have things really changed since then? Right. And, and what does that mean? And then I to date it back further, like how have things really changed since Outsiders Within was first released in 2006? Right. And so. And even prior to that, right, because it wasn't like adoptees weren't engaged in activism before the Internet. It's rather right. Um, but rather thinking about how has that activism continually shifted based on the technology available? Mm-hmm. And especially now, what does it mean when we are able to create that genealogy? Because knowing that history is so important to really understand, okay, if people are like, well, why didn't we do this before? Or if people are like, well, we have done this before. This is what it looked like. It's to be able to respect and honor what has been done in the past, as well as figuring out, well, how can we leverage that or build on that or expand that now? Yeah. Well, and I think it's wild too. (laughs) It reminds me of um, (laughs) kind of like the JFK reversal. Ask not what, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It's like, ask not what activism has done for social media, but what social media has done for, you know, like those kinds of things. But like, well, yeah, these, they they just wasn't like, even if that the platform existed, people weren't thinking about it in those ways. And I think it's, what's so interesting is when you said like, yeah, it's 20, like, I love the, the way that you've situated 1992 to 2015, because it feels like such a, like a, a unique time, um, to, to talk around, the developing consciousness of adoption broadly in America and both for the non-adopted and the adopted. Um, and, and I, as you said, like, yeah, 2015, I felt like it was a nice bookend. I, it reminded me, um, just, just a year before 2014, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and like, you know, had that not happened, I mean, it, if it weren't, if it wasn't him, it would be another person. And, um, drawing the line from, Michael Brown to George Floyd, drawing the line from um, <laughs> Fresh Off the Boat launches in 2015, I think. Um, and so then we have another like Asian American sitcom, um, which is the first since, again, like the 90s, really. Uh, and we have t- Crazy Rich Asians that launches in 2018 that leads to Shang-Chi, that leads to, you know, like all of these kinds of things. And and I really do think it is a a unique 
kind of turning the page. And I think that there is um, almost a call and response between the period that you've highlighted, 92 to 2015, and the preceding um, what eight years, almost nine years that we're at now. And, and, and I think that that's, that's so interesting. Um, I, I am such a big fan of, of the work that you are doing, uh, and, and your writings and things. Um, do you have, and I only asked this because you hinted at it in our last podcast and before we started rolling, do you have thoughts on a book number three? Um, <laughs> and what can we get a little, John Chi exclusive sneak peek. <laughs> it probably is not a, an exclusive or a sneak peek, but uh, of what that could be about. And in two years, we'll have you back on. <laughs> <laughs> so I have been thinking uh, a lot about the fantasies adoptees hold. And specifically thinking about Korean adoptees and, and our fantasies about Korea. Mm. I've been thinking about it, how growing up, we construct these, um, these imaginary worlds, what Betty Jean Lifton calls ghost kingdoms. Uh, Shannon Gibney really, and, and I keep referencing Shannon, she's a mixed black transracial adoptee. And I think about how she writes in her speculative memoir. She writes about her, she reflects on her own life. She also reflects on sort of the imagined life of what it would have been if she remained Aaron Powers, uh, which was her um, name given by her biological mother and what that would have looked like, right? And really demonstrates, too, that that life, that idealized life, may not have been as ideal as we thought, too, right? I think sometimes it's so easy to slip into being like, but it should have been better or it would have been better, but we don't know, right? And so for me, I've been really sitting with, okay, what were the actual conditions in which we would have been operating in? What would that have looked like? How is adoption also so happenstance, right? Where, oh, you might have been sent to a different family if it wasn't for, you know, the way the social worker felt that day, right? Or if it wasn't for some of these conditions, it wasn't- Mercury in retrograde and that- Right, yeah, like, like, oh, the whatever. sun, moon, and stars aligned today. So, yeah. hey, you're going to go to the US. Um, and I don't mean to sound flippant, nor do I mean to say that one is better than the other, but rather I, I think it's for us to kind of start having that conversation as well. I think mm-hmm. we need to be capable of having more nuanced conversations where we wrestle with the gray area, where we think about these things, when we talk about fantasies, when we talk about what fantasies of returning to Korea are looking like. Because even as adoptees have been living in Korea for quite some time, so I think about those who um, I, I've met who've, who've lived here, who have lives here, who've repatriated, right, with dual citizenship. Um, I think about those with F4 visas. I also thinking about adoptees who may be listening, who haven't made the trip back to Korea yet for a variety of reasons, or those who have made the trip and and the kind of how revolutionary that might have been, or maybe those who made the trip and maybe it was less revolutionary. But we're all in such different points. So we also need to acknowledge those while, simult- while having these simultaneous conversations. For me, um, and I was privileged enough to have a, a short essay um, it released in the Korea Times earlier this week, where I reflect about how I'm so interested in both these fantasies as well as as the mundane, the everydayness of life in Korea with my son. Because mm-hmm. he is giving me a glimpse as he goes to his Korean daycare of what life could have been, while also recognizing the conditions in which I would have been raised would have been much would would not have been the same. And obviously right. it, it, this is not the 1980s. What? Right. I mean, I know uh, high-waisted jeans are back, uh, belts. Uh, <laughs> I was like, there's a lot of things of that are 90s. giving me Right. Giving so, me like, I know there's, like, yeah. a certain yeah. vibe. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, but I think for me, it's it's spending a lot of time thinking about what what is that? Yeah. What is that like? What is that like for my son, who's the child of two adoptees? What is that like for him? Is I know he's code-switching already between being at his Oranijib, his daycare, and coming home to his primarily English-speaking mother who speaks very poor, low-level Korean, right? (laughs) What does that look like? I've also been thinking a lot about what does this mean in terms of how we understand kinship relations. I have been in reunion for a decade. um, And while I have seen, like, my oma and appa, this time has been really spent getting to know my yodongseng, my sister, my younger sister, more. Um, she's mm-hmm. visited me in the U.S. 
2018 and we've gotten to know each other, but this is different because it's such a sustained period of time. And so I'm really savoring those moments of, of what that means. And, you know, I said, I think, I, I don't know, maybe I, we were talking about this earlier before we started recording, but I've been thinking a lot about just motherhood and kinship. And obviously adoptees have been having children. Like I'm not going to delude myself to be like, oh, I'm the newest, whatever. No. <laughs> I'm the but first one. <laughs> I'm the first one to have a baby. But no, I'm, I'm more interested though in thinking about how has in it was Adam Chow and, or, and, uh, and I, I mispronounced his name, I apologize, and, and Kevin Osvolmers, who wrote, or Kevin Volmers, who had that um, small volume edited collection, Parenting as Adoptees, and that came out over a decade ago, right? I think about them. I think about, um, I think J. Ron has kind of written a little bit about this in Harlow's Monkey. I think about um, John Rabel, um, who's another transracial domestic adoptee who's written about kind of parenting Right. So there, there are folks who've been doing this, this work. For me, what I'm struck by as I'm living in Korea for this year is what does it mean then to have my son here um, and, and witness to how difficult it was as he was first going to daycare here. Right. And his transition to Korea and how it wasn't very smooth. It took about three, three and a half months before you know, you could see him really being okay. And for me, all that has done is really honestly made me think about those adoptees who are adopted at around his age, he's four, um, or older, right? Because you have all of those memories. And so, I don't know, I just am like, I can't imagine what that was like because I was an infant when I was adopted. And as a parent, you know, it was so he would be so upset and I was, you know, and he's here with his, he's here with me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, there is a tenderness there that I've been sitting with. And as I figure out what this means, like this, this year has been this, and we're not even through the year, right. The, these last four months have been utterly incredible. Um, as I really think about, you know, the possibilities. Um, and I think a lot about, how is this year going to transform him and his relationship with Korea um, and his understandings of a Korean identity? Like he just got his haircut like last week and he wanted a bro haircut. Um, <laughs> it took me a while to figure out what a bro haircut is. And no, no, he's wearing uh, one of the predominant haircuts he sees around campus. Right. So we live on <laughs> campus at Sogong university. And uh, so he has like, he's like four, but has like this haircut that a lot of like, you know, 20 something girl Korean <laughs> students are having. So, you know, it's, it's those moments where, you know, we talk a lot about windows and mirrors uh, in children's literature. And so um, my good friend, colleague, Sarah Park Dolan, who's Korean American non-adopted has written a lot about this um, and the importance of windows and mirrors and what that looks like. Right. And so, you know, he's having access to all of these, you know, how is that going to inform his identity in ways that, you know, may have been similar, but obviously being in Korea, it's different, right? Mm -hmm. Than if he was back home in the U.S. Well, not to like start a whole new podcast episode, but especially <laughs> the interplay of being in Korea with Koreans versus being in America with Korean Americans and how that like, I mean, a bro haircut might look the same, but like <laughs> everything else might be very different, you know? And, and yeah, I think that that's so fascinating. And I love, I love to hear the idea of, fantasy and the mundane coming together in, in one thing, right? Um, and I think we talked about this on our, our first episode. We might have touched on it just briefly around the, the idea of mythology and the role that it plays in the stories that we tell ourselves as adoptees and how then we relate to the world around us because of the mythologies of our adoption, right? And so being able to think, I think, um, not not that they're not wholly connected or unconnected, but the idea of like, we have, you know, the mythology of our adoption and we also have the fantasies um, and the dreams and what, what is the interplay of those things as we move through the world and do very mundane things. And, and I think, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I love where your head is at right now. And I really hope that, that that becomes a viable thing to be put out into the world, whether it's in book form or otherwise. Um, honestly, if it, 
only go so far as this podcast. It's it's enough to just um, to just like sit and chew on for me. So uh, thank you so much for for coming on the show um, across the international dateline. I think <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's tomorrow yeah. there. So. Yeah, it is, tomorrow so, there. Um, it is the future. <laughs> yeah, where uh, where can people find you? Where can people buy your book? Um, how can people get connected and, and do things to to help support your work? You can find me on Instagram at Adoptee Killjoy. I'm also on threads, but I am not very active. So KJ, when you were on there, I was like, oh, wait, I have to jump back on threads. I'm also on Blue Sky, but I haven't really used it yet either as Adoptee yeah, Killjoy. Yeah, I'm technically there, but eh, I don't know. <laughs> right. So I guess this is my very long way of saying you can find me at, on Instagram. Um, and then I, there's a link in my bio there, a link tree where you can find information about ordering the book. You can order the book Adoption Fantasies, the Fetishization of Asian Adoptees from Girlhood to Womanhood, wherever books are sold. Is there an audiobook version? That's important. I would have to double check. I think okay. there should be. If there's be, not, we should figure out how to make that happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it as well. And appreciate it again uh, coming on our, our show again. First official, second time. So. Well, thank yeah. you again so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we have loved having you on. So you can follow her on Instagram. What was your handle one more time? Adoptee Killjoy. Adoptee Killjoy on Instagram. Hit the link in the bio to buy the book, wherever books are sold. Uh, you can find us at John Chi Show. I'm at KJ Relke. He's N Nowak or Nathan Nowak on Facebook. Patrick is at Patrick in the World. Uh, support the show by going to johnchishow.com slash support. And uh, that covers most of it. I think, um, until, wait, we're not doing a food, right? We didn't coordinate no. that. Okay, great. Uh, you did not send me a Korean food while I'm in Korea. No. While you're in no, Korea. So. <laughs> hey, Kim, you know what? That's a two-way street. Uh, yeah. I, next time I'll just send you some hot dogs knowing now that you're right? just, Well, no, yeah, I know my son, he really, he really messes a good American hot dog. I don't, I, that's not, I don't know where he gets that from because it's not from me. That's really funny. Well, hey, until next time, Kim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners, John C. Hale. John C. Hale.